Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Female Driven Podcast. We are three film and television writers who are here to talk about how to make it as professional writers in the entertainment industry. This podcast covers what we wish we'd known when we were getting started. You can learn the easy way what we learned the hard way. I'm Jess Cho. I mostly write for television. I'm Hannah Rosner. I also mostly write for television. And I'm Erica Schreiber. I mostly write features. And we are here to talk about how to create compelling characters, which is one of the most important things you can do as a writer. So I thought I'd ask you guys, who are some of your favorite characters from TV and film? I have quite a long list, but if I had to narrow it down, the names that come to mind immediately are Furiosa, Heath Ledger's Joker, Morpheus from Matrix, and in a complete divergent, I love Christina Yang from Grey's Anatomy. I love how they're not all the same archetype. You have like a badass leading lady, you have a villain, you have a mentor. Good job on that. Mine are almost all, it's like Ripley, Sarah Connor, like those are the first characters that came to mind and they're, you know, female protagonists. But then you've got Fox Mulder, who was like my favorite character, TV character growing up. He was also my first crush. Yeah, he was. (laughs) Correct answer. Yes. And then I think of recent TV Villanelle from Killing Eve, of course, is probably one of the best characters on TV. Yeah. What about you, Erica? Katniss. Sadly, more book Katniss than movie Katniss because I don't love the adaptations. But I also think of like one of the characters that was most formative for me was Xena. But also Jane Eyre and Elizabeth Bennet, I really look at as archetypes of classic, especially female heroines. You know, for the time period, they were like so ahead of their time in a lot of really fascinating ways. I also think of Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Obsessed with her. And then just to throw a dude in there, I think of actually Jamie Lannister. Maybe not last season of Game of Thrones Jamie Lannister, but like the middle seasons of Jamie Lannister is some of the best character work I've seen. And then I also... Just like, because I will throw this in in every conversation that I possibly can. Michelle Yeoh and Crazy Rich Asians is just like, (laughs) (laughs) just one of my favorite creations ever. That's a good list, guys. That's a good list. I think by now our listeners should know our list is mostly going to be full of badass women. But there's a lot of different archetypes in there, right? Like we mentioned some heroes, we mentioned some villains, some anti-heroes, some love interests specifically for probably 12-year-old Hannah. Uh, (laughs) But also there's all different kinds of classic archetypes for characters. But I feel like we should start with protagonists. Most TV shows, most movies have a clear protagonist that you are investing in more than any of the other characters. I know for me, going back to Katniss, she takes her younger sister's place in like the first like 10 minutes of that movie, right? And like, I've got a little sister. I love her. I don't I don't know if I would do that. I, I hope I would. <laughs> but like, there's nothing, I don't know if I can think of a single move that gets me more on a character's side than to do that right off the bat, to sacrifice her life and her future for someone she loves. My little brother, I would be like, you go ahead. You would would fare so much better in the Hunger Games than me. He's like in very good shape. So I wouldn't do it, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Like what makes Furiosa just like such a fantastic... I mean, she's she's like the co-protagonist. Yeah, she's the sneak protagonist, as I call her, because everyone's like, oh, it's going to be Tom Hardy because he's Mad Max. And then it turns out Furiosa is a lot more interesting because she actually has a character arc. You know, Tom Hardy, I love him. I love the guy. But he's basically, his character arc is just grunting. That's that's his story. I love a good stealth protagonist, by the way, where you think it's one character, but in fact, it's, it's actually someone else whose arc is defining the movie. Yes, exactly. And the thing about Furiosa is when you meet her, you think she's, I don't know, just like a cog warrior in the machine. She's sort of been beaten down, but she's managed to climb her way up to a pretty prestigious position, right? She's basically a general in this apocalyptic army. 
And then we see what's driving her. We see her need for revenge against this patriarchal system that has brought her low. We see her desire to redeem herself by protecting these younger, more vulnerable women. And so, you know, layer by layer throughout the movie, we get to see just what a stoic character she is. I was thinking about Ripley as also kind of a sneak protagonist, but not not in the same way as Furiosa. It's not like you think somebody else is the lead character. I, I read the original script for Alien, and I was actually kind of surprised. It's very not clear who is the main character of the movie until like halfway through because everyone is just kind of a grunt. Uh, they're, you know, engineers or mechanics working on this ship. And it's a survival story and, you know, it's a horror movie. So people are getting picked off. But Ripley very gradually, very cleverly emerges as the lead because she's making the smart choices. Everyone else's choices are sort of motivated by just they're selfish or they're like, we got to get out of here or they're every man for for themselves. Whereas Ripley is the one that you look to because she just stays level headed and she stays calm. She's terrified, but she makes brave choices that are kind of for the good of everybody. And I feel like I always identify or at least am drawn to characters who are like Ripley or are like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, the one that's like, we should really be listening to this person. You know, for Ripley, uh, her drive is survival, but even more than that, you know, uh, survival of the greater good, you know, like that's her focus. Furiosa is driven by revenge because Xena is like kind of my go-to. Like she is driven by redemption throughout the show, right? She has this very dark, evil backstory and there's this kind of unwavering need to make it right, you know? So like these are all incredibly strong drives. So I think that when we talk about what makes a good protagonist, it's it's this kind of a drive, right? That like you're rooting for them and they have a really clear goal. Yes, clear. Like that's a that's a key word too. It's like a strong drive where it's emotional, you understand it, but it's also clear and simple. It doesn't have to be, you know, they want to be the head of a Fortune 500 company. It doesn't have to be anything, I don't know, too complicated. It just has to be relatable. I would, like you were saying, Erica, you would take your system, you would, you know, in your mind's eye, if you were the protagonist of a movie, you would want to be the one that takes their sister's place. Yeah, I'd want to be that person. Would we really be those people? That's why they're movies and books. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So conversely, let's talk about maybe the even funner character, which is like, what makes a great villain or antagonist, right? Because, and I, I think the thing that people say over and over again, and it takes a while to sink in, especially if you're someone like me who writes action movies, is that the villain is also the hero of their story as much as the protagonist is. Looking at possibly the greatest villain of all time is is Hans Gruber from Die Hard. I feel like he's the go-to of villains, right? And it's not that he thinks he's the good guy, right? But like to him, this is his story. To Hans Gruber, this is the story all about how his life got flipped when he came to do a heist at Nakatomi Plaza and this this asshole, his antagonist is is Bruce Willis, right? Like he's got a plan, he's executing, he has a clear want, and he has a lot of personality and there's a lot of little details that make him so memorable. Absolutely. I always think of Magneto. You know, Magneto is definitely the hero of, of his story when he when he's the villain. Sometimes he's the Depends on which X-Men movie you're talking about or comic. But in general, though, generally, yeah, he has a very clear hero arc of I'm going to save the mutants. Right. I am like humans are so passe. Let's get rid of them all. Mutant time, you know, and like you see his backstory in the first in X-Men of like that. Like there's it's so they they start the first X-Men movie on his backstory so that you understand 
where he's coming from. Like that's, that's really great writing as much as it pains me to say that about a Brian Singer movie, that intro where he's in a concentration camp and fighting to, you know, be with his family as stronger forces force him away from them. Like you're kind of on his side. The ideal is if you can have at some point in your movie, your audience thinking, Hmm, the bad guy's got a point though. You know, yeah. like even <laughs> if it's if it's their their methods may be, you know, too violent or I think Magneto's got a point, but also don't kill humans. So they're they're a villain for a reason, but they are they're also right in a way. That's what you really should strive for. The stronger you make your villain, the more powerful you make your protagonist. Because let's take the movie, the Avengers movie, for example. I don't think that movie would have worked nearly as well if Loki wasn't such a great villain. You know, if you don't have a very strong villain, then it's not very extraordinary for your protagonist to overcome that villain's motives or that villain's agenda. I hadn't thought about this before, but you guys were talking about Magneto and we start off with his backstory. I remember The Dark Knight when I watched that for the first time. And that movie starts with the most amazing sequence of the Joker pulling off this heist. And I hadn't thought about that opening before, but I realized that is part of why I think people love that villain so much because we are so in the bank robber's perspective and we get to see his plan unfold bit by bit and we see how brilliant he is and then we see how weird he is and after that like after he drives the bus off into the line of other buses and gets away with the crime this guy is amazing and i want to watch him forever and i'm just totally in at that moment those are the best both anti-heroes and villains are the ones that even if you're not necessarily rooting for them or you're like i shouldn't root for them they're doing bad things but you're like ooh, i do want to watch them succeed because they're so smart. They're such, they're so badass. Loki is like this incredible, intelligent trickster. He's always one step ahead. So like you were saying, Jess, if then Thor actually gets the jump on him or anybody does, you're like, okay, that protagonist is obviously very smart and really badass if they're able to get one over on this incredibly intelligent character. Yeah, I think in, you know, they say like Hans Gruber and the Joker and Loki and I'll throw back in <laughs> Michelle Yeoh and Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> they are so incredibly watchable. They get to be interesting in a way that a lot of times protagonists don't. Because protagonists are often your point of view character. They need to be relatable. And obviously like your villain, your antagonist needs to be just as multifaceted as your protagonist. And a villain with an arc even better because again i think i would say hans gruber has an arc where he's like i want to steal money and i'm a super slick guy to i don't really care i just fucking want to murder bruce willis right (laughs) (laughs) but uh, michelle Yeoh is the better example because you know like she starts off and she's got this very clear agenda that she's she's got it out for our girl and she evolves and like i remember watching that movie the first time in a theater and when uh the guy proposes with michelle Yeoh's rings i like gasped allowed you know and like and that's an incredible moment of writing it's like michelle is not even in that scene but it is such a it just combines everything it makes it about your the relationship between your protagonist and your antagonist without the antagonist even being there because it has been plotted so well and character has been revealed in such great ways that we understand the meaning of that in a really powerful way that leads nicely to the next topic which is what makes a character stand out Erica, you're just talking about the ring moment. And the reason why that moment stood out is because Michelle Yeoh's character and how well she's been plotted, that that moment really resonated. So what do you guys think makes a character compelling or unique? I think it's it's uh, more than anything, it's the choices they make. 
Katniss chooses to save her sister and Michelle Yeoh chooses to give her ring. Like those are all choices, right? Like it's a specific action. If you are not having those characters make real difficult big choices, then we're not going to care about them, right? Like, why are we here uh, if things just happen to them and they just keep going the way they've always been going? Alongside of what choices the characters are making, not only what choices are they making, but what do those choices cost them? Michelle Yeoh giving up the ring, that decision, I think, cost her something. You know, it was a real sacrifice because she is a woman who has had to fight for her place in that society. She knows how harsh it is. She wants only the best for her son. She doesn't believe this woman is necessarily the best woman for her precious boy. But the fact that she gave that ring is like, okay, this is costing me my pride, my sense of security for my son's future, but it's for him. It's costing the future I imagined for the person I care about the most and accepting that he gets to choose his own future. And the way that Constance Wu's character like actually succeeded in earning her respect Constance Wu walks away, right? We have that amazing Mahjong scene that I could watch over and over <laughs> so again. Good. But Constance Wu, she she makes a gamble. She gives up what she wants most, or what it turns out she wants second most, because what she wants most is her, her own self-respect. She's been trying to force herself into this role through the movie, and she's like, I'm done. And, and that gives her power and that power that she takes back gets her what she wants but she had to that you asked exactly what does it cost what does it cost her to walk away it costs her what's his name henry golding it costs her like the hottest guy we may have ever seen so (laughs) (laughs) big gamble there (laughs) by the way just a side note about crazy rich asians they had a ring that was like the prop that they were going to have Michelle Yeoh wear. And she's like, this is not good enough. And she used her own ring. Wow. <laughs> she's like, nice. What a boss. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Those choices, the cost of those choices. I think also just little character moments that pay off. Like that, again, I think we're just going to talk a lot about Crazy Rich Asians. Like we see Constance Wu is really good at gambling in the beginning. And that pays off later. It tells us something about her, right? She's a professor, but she's also really, really good at reading people. And we know that because of that specific small detail about the gambling. So details really, really matter, but they should have more than one purpose. Like, don't just throw in a detail that won't matter in the third act of your movie. I think also point of view is one thing that's that's really important and that I try to keep in mind when I'm thinking about a character arc and how they're going to grow and how they're going to change. Because if they don't change, it's boring. <laughs> then what's the point of telling it? It's not a story. And also it, it ties back into the choices and what are the cost of those choices. What A story with a main character is a series of dilemmas in which they're forced to make a choice. And those choices all have to be driven by their point of view. So the choice both is reflective of what their point of view is at the start of the movie. I'm not as well versed in Crazy Rich Asians as much as I love the movie. So I'm going to use Contact as an example. Ellie in Contact, her point of view is that there's nothing out there spiritually. Everything is science. There is a reason and a logic to the universe and everything has to make sense. And that is her point of view that does not change. And it's challenged by cute little Matthew McConaughey trying to bring in his whole little like believe in God and like faith and you know, his whole thing. Her point of view is challenged. And then it but it's not until the big climactic sequence in which you know, she meets her father in space. Sorry, spoiler alert, everyone should see that movie. Um, (laughs) 20 years old at this point, right? Please see that movie. That's the moment when she finally realizes that all along she has been holding on to 
her point of view that there's nothing else out there and that's not necessarily true and that that's the moment when faith it kind of all comes full circle for her that she she does believe in something that's that's greater than her and something that she doesn't have a scientific explanation so yeah tracking your character's point of view that'll just help you see what what is the choice that they would make in this moment and how does that turn their point of view how does that inform their arc so in terms of like when we're writing right and we are coming up with our main character where do you guys start with like you know because obviously you're going to be spending if you're you're writing it you're going to be spending a lot of time with this character and you've got to really be invested in them as a writer but you also need your reader and hopefully watcher to be equally as invested so where do you guys start with that I often think about something N.K. Jemison said. She wrote an amazing series called Fifth Season. And then she did a masterclass about the writing of that series. The way she structured her lecture was really amazing. She said, once you know what your world is, especially if it's a genre piece, you can build your character from the ground up. So, for example, in the Fifth Season series, all her characters exist in a world where there are constantly catastrophic climate events that keep happening. And so because of that, she's like, okay, so my main character is going to be a survivor. She's going to have this type of hair, this type of physiology. She's going to have this type of worldview because also N.K. Jemison knew I need this inciting incident to happen. Her children will be taken. And when that happens, what does this person do? And then she sort of built that character around the inciting incident and the world. So yeah, and so that's kind of like the conceit of your character, right? Like what's the first thing that they do that matters and how is it a twist on what you've already set up? Katniss is a hunter. Katniss's mom is useless. Katniss loves her sister. Twist, right? Like and you take that <laughs> and you, and so like, that's the thing that like gets us off to the, it's the hook. It's something that's a unique choice to your character. I usually do start with the goal. What's, what does the character want? What is their drive and what's driving their choices? I know it's basic stuff, but then I really do go into what's their core wounds. So that's sort of the thing that happened. It may or may not happen in your pilot or even be alluded to in your future, but I think you need to know what that thing is. And so, you know, going back to Ellie in contact, her father died when she was a little girl and that incident that we actually do see in a flashback shaped her whole story. It shaped everything about who she is. And it's something that she needs to overcome is this, well, I lost my dad at this young age. And it was inexplicable. And it was unfair. And that sort of shapes her point of view of there's nothing else out there. If there was, I would have found him, you know, so I, I try to identify what that core wound is, because it also informs their flaws, usually like this, this person is selfish because of the way that they were raised and the fact that like, you know, their mom left when they were a child. Core wound is usually backstory. And like going back to, like I said, we'd go back to Furiosa, right? Like her core wound is backstory. And I just love the way that, especially because it's such, it's clearly such a traumatic backstory. The way it's executed should be a masterclass to everyone who has long monologues about their character's backstory <laughs> at any point, right? We know is exactly as much as we need to know about Furiosa, right? No, no more than that. And like when she kills, you know, uh, got the guy with the ridiculous name at the end. And Morton Joe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she says like, do you remember me? And we're all just like, oh, like that's the, like that is what informs every choice she makes in this movie. It's what informs her creating this whole plan 
and why she feels the need to save women from this fate that she has survived. And that's that core wound. And you need to know exactly what that is as a writer. But you do not need to tell me, the reader, exactly what that is. Show me, don't tell me. Be like Furiosa. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you say core wounds, generally you think of like something dark, but it can apply to any genre. So even comedy, like Kimmy Schmidt, I mean, to be fair, she has a pretty dark backstory, but it's a a light show. Other than that, it, it is a comedy, but her core wound is she was kidnapped as a teenager and lived in a bunker for 15 years. And that informs her flaw that she's naive and immature and acts like a teenager. And a lot of the conflict of the show comes from that flaw. So flaw is, you know, your characters should be flawed because that's what makes them human and makes them relatable. Nobody wants to watch somebody that's just perfect unless there's some perfect hot guy. That's fine. What's his name? Henry Golding? Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's Henry Golding. I don't think he's <laughs> got any flaws and that's okay. But your main characters should, should He's a mama's flaws. boy. That's <laughs> true. That's true. He's definitely flawed. But like, yeah, um, if you look at uh, at Constance Wu's character, her flaw is that she doesn't believe in herself enough because she just doesn't actually believe she's good enough. That's the thing that she needs to to get past. To really think through your main character like you should know the answer to like what stage of life are they in and what you know like where do they work what's their social status what's what kind of relationships do they have with people or have they had with people and then I think a really important one is like the the inverse of flaws is their redeeming traits like what makes them super awesome and spend spend good time on that because that's something you know like if you only have a super awesome character with no flaws then they're boring so like there's a balance to be struck uh, Zena <laughs> her flaws <laughs> that she murdered a bunch of people and she's not a good communicator you know like <laughs> yeah but her redeeming traits are say that she's super awesome at fighting people and she cares so much about protecting people because of what she's done and that she has this relationship with Gabrielle that allows us to see this humanity in her. It's as important for villains to have redeeming traits as it is obviously for heroes like Cersei in Game of Thrones. She's, (laughs) she's a bad lady. She does some horrible things, but (laughs) she's a devoted mother. Like you can't argue that she's not, (laughs) you know, really maybe the most devoted mother. (laughs) She's a, she's a bit too devoted. She will do anything for her children, but you know, it does redeem her. There are moments where you're like, I get why she does what she does. And sometimes a redeeming trait, like if you look at Hans Gruber, his redeeming traits is that he's really smart and he's really charming. That he's so, and and like, it doesn't have to be that he's, you know, like he believes what he's doing is morally right. Like, fuck no, that's not Hans Gruber. He looks fucking great in a suit and you want to watch him all day long. And you want to see, he's so smart. You want to watch his plan unfold. It's fascinating. I think the Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker follows that really well. When the Joker has the pile of money that he got back for the gangsters, and then he just burns his half. To me, that was a redeeming trait for this villain, because it's like, if he was in it for the money, it's like, oh, that's sort of cheap and like low or whatever. Oh my God, he's like the opposite of Hans Gruber. But yeah, he's like, it's not about the money. Yeah, you know, he's a nihilist, and that is a really interesting perspective that you don't often get to see in a movie. And I think that he's just such the opposite of Batman, you know? Like, Batman is is all about law and order, Batman is all about like believing that from the darkness he can create good and like the Joker is he is the opposite and that's what makes them so compelling together makes him such a fearsome villain that the you're like okay how is Batman 
going to take this guy down if he doesn't even play by the same rules as Batman. He doesn't live by the same code. And so that's what makes that movie so brilliant is that you're just in in kind of new territory. Yeah, he's like impossible to defeat. You cannot defeat the Joker because if Batman kills him, the Joker wins. And if Batman doesn't kill him, the Joker lives to do... He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about anything other than causing chaos and so like he can't lose and that's fascinating to me so now that we've talked a little bit about how to brainstorm a character maybe we should talk a little bit about character in terms of structure first of all let's focus on the protagonist right like how to structure and my brain always goes to screenplay and you guys can adjust this to to pilots or shows how you see fit but like first 10 pages of your screenplay that's your chance to make the right first impression for your character where do you want me to start with your character Die Hard, Bruce Willis, you're telling me that he is afraid of flying, which is super relatable, but also that he has this really big want of making things right with his wife. And so for all I know, this is the movie about a man who just hates flying and wants to bring his family back together. That's the first impression I get of John McClane. Also that he's a cop, right? That that job, that status of relationships, like I've established all those things. That is the correct first impression for that character to get me interested leading up to the turning point of the movie where he makes a really big choice right and in die hard it's that you know i'm gonna stay here in this building that's been taken over by terrorists and try to save my wife big choice yeah you want to see your character doing what they're what they're best at ideally i think in in your introduction to them is it's specific it tells you who they are and what they do and ideally that that trait whatever it is that they're super good at is going to come into play down the line. But I will say conversely, you also might want to show a character failing in the first 10 pages in a really relatable way, especially so that like when we see them, you know, in the third act facing a similar situation, they succeed because they've earned it. And they've learned things along the way that informed, okay, that's how I will not fail this time. And so like just looking at either one of those methods works, right? To either show your character succeeding and then taking everything away or showing your character failing and then building them up. But there, it's a choice, right, that you're making as the writer to either show the lowest, you know, start them start them low and bring them high or start them high and then bring them low and build them back up. You know, your first 10 pages and your first act are a big challenge. You've got to establish the roles of the world, even, even if it's not a genre piece, like even if it's a rom-com, like what kind of rom-com is this? How grounded are we? How ungrounded are we? And using your main character to illustrate all of that as much as possible. The point of view of your main character being established should accomplish a lot of different things. It should let me know how to feel about your main character, maybe what their strengths and weaknesses are right off the bat, and how they interact with everyone around them and with the world they're in. In your first 10 pages, you want to see your character's conflict as usual, kind of what is going on in their life. What's their ordinary world that they exist in? Is it their dead-end job? Is it their shitty marriage? Is it something actually really great that they're going to lose um, in the in the catalyst moment? So rooting us in what is their day-to-day grind? What is kind of the, the day-to-day world that they live in and the conflict that they're sort of stuck in and need to overcome? Because that will inform your catalyst moment, your turning point moment where they get offered some sort of opportunity and you now know What's the cost of that choice? I'm giving up maybe a safe and secure ordinary world, but 
I cannot remain in this world. I will not, the, the, your main character will not progress and will not um, improve their situation and will definitely not get what they want if they just stay there. It kind of becomes about what your character can and cannot accept for that turning point. Katniss cannot accept that her sister will go to the Hunger Games and that's what kicks us off, right? John McClane cannot accept that terrorists are going to kill his wife before he has a chance to yell at her again. Keanu Reeves cannot accept not getting on that bus. Can't accept it. <laughs> <laughs> he can't just take the next, next one. No, he definitely has to not. Get on no, that he's got to get on that bus. He's got to meet Sandra Bullock. Yeah. <laughs> magic has to happen. And then just skipping ahead, I feel like, you know, like, you set that up, but your turning point should give your main character the juice to get through act one, act two, usually, you know, like all the setup that we've done now is pushing us into act two, right? And then I feel like the next really big character choice comes, you know, and again, I'm just speaking in screenwriting terms here, is the low point, the lowest point in your movie at the end of act two, like John McClane's bleeding and... I think Alan Rickman has outsmarted him and he's like, there's no way out. They know who I am, I think, because that cocaine addict told them who I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> all the chips are down. And it's not so much that the choice isn't predictable. We know that John McClane is going to get up off the mat. We know that Furiosa, when she discovers that the green place is gone, is still going to fuck shit up, right? But like, that choice and how it's executed really, really matter. In, in Mad Max, like, it's honestly, it's Max who's like, we have to do better. If we can't go forward, we need to go backwards and blow that shit up. That's what it takes. Is that, that's, it's a fantastic scene between Max and Furiosa. It really matters not even necessarily what the choice is, especially in an action movie. We know the choice is they're going to get back up. But everything that you have established in Act 1 and 2 needs to play into that decision. And the lower you can bring your character, that correlates to how satisfying your resolution is or unsatisfying, I suppose. But in action movies, it is generally a satisfying re resolution because they, they want that happy ending. So for example, when Furiosa discovers there's no green place, it's gone and she's very upset. And Max is like, you want a green place? Set up your own green place. And for her, after we've seen this entire journey of her just getting beaten to shit over this car ride and also knowing a little bit about her backstory and what she's had to overcome, the resolution of her killing a Morton Joe and then going back to reclaim that space where she was abused is incredibly, incredibly delicious. She's made the choice to fight throughout this movie, right? But she is also making the choice to run. And it's not because she's a coward, it's because that's the best decision with the information she has. But then, it's, you know, it's not a surprising choice that she chooses to fight. It's just that, like, she's run to the end of the running. And for John McClane, what he's doing isn't working anymore, you know? Or in Crazy Rich Asians, it's, you know, like, she's finally been broken or seems to have been broken by all the pressure from the family, right? Like, they corner her at the wedding and are like, um, your mom is, sucks and, <laughs> and you, you're li you lied to us about how, about how you were born. It turns out that, like... It's her lowest point because it's not that she lied. She didn't know, you know, what her own history was. That breaks her and she and she runs and she, you know, sleeps in Aquafina's bed for what feels like two weeks, but it's probably like two days. And then she's like, I'm going home. But before she does, her mom is like, are you going to leave like this? And she's like, no, I'm fucking not. And then she plays Mahjong and we all bow to the power of, Mich of Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> yes. And I know we've been talking a lot about through the lens of feature structure, but this applies to a pilot structure as well. You know, it's just the page count is different, obviously. It's not probably 10 pages, uh, maybe 10 pages for your first act, but your low point is going to happen rather than being end of act two of the movie, it's going to happen end of act four of your 
of your TV pilot, ideally. And the difference being rather than it, it is going to lead to a resolution for the episode, but it's not the end of the movie. It's not self-contained. It's actually launching a series. And so you want to get your character to their lowest moment of the episode and get them to a place where they are going to make that decision of no going back. And now, now we're in the premise of the show. So for example, Breaking Bad, he finds out he's got cancer. He's like, everything is going fucking wrong for Walter White. And it is at his lowest moment that he's like, all right, I guess I'm cooking meth. Like, and then we have a show. You want to push your character to their lowest, most extreme point. And like you said, their chips are down. What are they going to do? And so that kind of takes it into the the resolution, right? A satisfying resolution. When I start writing a script, I know where my protagonist will end because you need that. Where your character starts and where your character ends needs to be, I like the, the 180 turn because you're still on the same line. You're just looking the opposite direction at what you need. Neo in the beginning is completely lost and searching for something. And at the end, he has accepted his identity as the one, right? And he's super empowered and also super powered. Yes, he flies. He flies. He sees the code. (laughs) We hope you guys enjoyed this episode and this has given you some helpful thoughts about character and how to craft compelling characters. If you have any questions or ideas for things you'd like us to talk about, you can email us at untitledfemaledrivenpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Untitled Female. And we would really love if you guys would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, That would help us a lot. We'll see you next time. And have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.